Our New Testament reading today is from Ephesians chapter 3. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 151. And if you're using a large print Bible, it's page 1170. Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation, therefore, was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mercy of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches in Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together as we sit. So Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together today where we are tired, perhaps drifting from you. Give us the grace to understand the privilege of today and thrill our hearts and minds with the knowledge and love of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. 
Well, after a long and exhausting search in the Valley of the Kings that was to last seven long years, the breakthrough was eventually to come on November the 4th, 1922, as British archaeologist Howard Carter finally found the steps down to the sealed tomb of the ancient King Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Within 20 days, they had cleared the totality of the stairways of dust, and then On November the 24th, in the presence of his sponsor, Lord Carnarvon, the sealed tomb was finally opened. Nervously, he records in his diary, his hands trembling, he forced a small hole in the left-hand corner of the doorway, lit a candle and peered inside. Presently, he writes in his journal, as my eyes grew accustomed to the lights, Details of the room began to emerge slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold, everywhere the glints of golds. For the moment, he writes, an eternity must have seemed to others standing by. I was struck dumb with amazements. And when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, said, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. The doorway was unblocked, then electric lights were installed, and then Carter and Carnarvon found themselves standing in the antechamber of the tomb, packed from floor to ceiling with everything an Egyptian king could possibly need for the afterlife. It was to take 10 years to catalogue it. All 5,000 artefacts, statues and jewellery and furniture and clothing, weapons, chariots, a stunning sarcophagus, a coffin nested with three others inside it. The final prize, the mummified remains of King Tutankhamun himself and then the golden desk death mask of the king extraordinary riches hidden for thousands of years at last unearthed and put on full display for a watching world to see. Now this morning we're going to be struck dumb with amazement ourselves as we turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 and to those first 11 verses Because Paul's point is that there are unbelievable riches which have lay hidden for millennia, which have not been seen by previous generations, but which now have been laid bare for us, the church of Jesus Christ, to see. Because in verse 2, if you're looking at the Bible, you can see that Paul uses a word there, mystery, a word that he uses three times in our section. But if you look up the word mystery in your dictionary, it will read something like this, a secret or something inexplicable or obscure. Rather like a murder mystery, I have no idea who done it. Or when we lose our car keys and we ask where are they, we say it is a complete mystery in the sense that it's not knowable or understandable. But the word that Paul uses is a Greek word that is different to that. It sounds the same. It is the Greek word mysterion. 
But the word mysterion is different to mystery. The word mysterion is something that was once hidden, which now has been fully unveiled. If you like, it's an uncovered secret. So you go to Broadway, you sit down in the theater, the music eventually starts, the curtains open, and you're transported to 1789, to French Revolutionary Paris, to Les Mis and the set. The set was already there, but you didn't see it because of the curtain. But it's unveiled as the orchestra begins, or Christmas morning. You come down and the presents are under the tree. You see this enormous gift. You, you've rattled it on Christmas Eve. You've tried to feel it, but you don't know what it is until the wrapping paper is taken off. And then you see what was previously hidden has now been fully unveiled. So what is this mysterion? Verse 6 is the answer. That the that's us, our fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God's plan was always to include the Gentiles. And all the way through the story of the Old Testament, we see hints of that. In Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. In Zechariah 2, God says that many nations will be joined with the Lord to you on that day, and you will become my people. But we only see it in the Old Testament in faint pencil, as random Gentiles here and there are brought in, like Rahab, the prostitute, or as Jonah takes the gospel to the people, the Gentiles of Nineveh. The plan of God in all of its glory had never been revealed previously to the nations, because the plan of God as to how he was going to win the nations was radical and seismic. In the Old Testament, you see Gentiles being brought into the nation of Israel, but they could never really be fully incorporated. There was no such thing as a green card or permanent citizenship for an outsider, unclean Gentile into the people of Israel. But the mysterion, the mystery that's been revealed, is extraordinary. It is the abolition of the temple. In fact, it's the abolition of the very nation of Israel itself. The Gentiles were outside in the court of the Gentiles. We thought about that last week. They could never really come in. So God's plan was always to abolish the temple to wind it up and place it into administration. It was to abolish the law and the nation of Israel itself and to create a brand new people, a brand new temple, a brand new nation. And that new nation, that new temple, that new Israel is Jesus. The word corporation is a word we use all of the time, but it was invented actually by lawyers in 6th century Rome. Like any good lawyers, they needed to advise their clients as to how you formed a company. Uh, you needed to do that for shareholding and for trade. How do you create a company? You need a legal entity, a legal locus. 
And as they thought about what the locus should be, they came up with the idea of the body. A body. A body into which you need to be included. The word was corpus, which means body, from which we get the word corpse. But the point is that the body is the group of people into which you are incorporated. The body is the corporation from that word corpus or corpse. And the point is that the corpus is Christ. No longer the nation of Israel, it's Jesus. We are incorporated into his body. The corporation is in Christ. And the sole basis of our incorporation into the corporation of the corpus of Christ is not our merits, but his mercy, his sacrificial death for sins. And therefore, the Jew over here and the Gentile over here enter in on the same basis. And we receive the three great privileges, says Paul, together, fellow heirs of the hope now, fellow members of the body now, and fellow partakers of the promise now. Because the law and the requirements of Sinai have been abolished in his saving death and triumphant resurrection. Which is why history is split into two epochs. B.C., before Christ, when only really the Jews could be saved, but they couldn't really be saved because they had to fully obey the synactic covenant. So B.C., before Christ, was an age of condemnation and exclusion. And A.D., Annus Domine, the age of the Lord, the age of grace. Because now through the death of Jesus and his triumphant resurrection, his spirit includes us into Jesus, Corpus Christi, the place of salvation by grace, as the great Berlin Wall of separation between Jew and Gentile is demolished and abolished in him. And because Israel has been abolished we no longer need to be Jewish to know God's. And so the dam of God's mercy has broken as the waters of grace and love and salvation now flood the world. And says Paul, my ministry as this apostle to the Gentiles is to preach it. Verse 8, the unfathomable riches of Christ, unfathomable in every sense of the word. Well, I've enjoyed reading the story of Captain Cook to one of our children. He's an extraordinary explorer, navigator, and cartographer appointed by the Royal Navy, uh, 1768 and all of that. And you'll know the story of those three great journeys as he headed across the world from New Zealand and Australia, I think was the first one, then the Pacific Ocean, as he mapped, as he mapped for England the unknown world. And detailed maps of Australia and the coastline and of New Zealand and Newfoundland are still used today in shipping, uh, which he first originally produced. But it was his uh, final journey that was to prove his downfall as he was sent out to find the northern passage. But he couldn't find it. It was too elusive they needed it in order to trade between England and the colonies. They wanted an easy way over the top, if you like. But he couldn't find it 
It was beyond him. And that's what that word unfathomable means. It literally means we can't map it out. And rather like the Atlantic Ocean, there are vast areas which have never been reached or plumbed or found or discovered. You cannot map it out. And Paul is saying that the grace of Jesus, the love of God, the mercy of the gospel, you can't map it out. It is too vast and big. We will never be able to understand it. It will take all of eternity as we try to wrap our heads around the vast extents of the love of God in the grace of Jesus in his saving death on the cross. Rather like the Atlantic Ocean, we're in it, but just like children, our feet are wet at the shoreline of New Jersey, but there's vast amounts of the Atlantic, vast bodies of water we will never really comprehend. The forgiveness of our sin, have you comprehended that? Your deliverance from an eternity in hell, have you really comprehended that? Your enthronement into the throne room of glory, have we really comprehended that? Even if we were to do a John Calvin and study the Bible for 12 hours a day, all day every day, I don't think we would ever really, this side of glory, grasp the full blessing of God's eternal grace in Jesus. But the headline is this. You, you filthy, unclean, dirty, disqualified Gentile, you are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers in the promise of Jesus Christ into the gospel. And the headline is this, you don't have to be circumcised and you don't have to become Jewish and you don't have to tremble at Mount Sinai as you attempt the law. It is a salvation that comes for free and it comes by grace. It has nothing to do with who we are. It has nothing to do with what we do, but everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done and secured for us at the cross. And so there's an application, isn't there, for gratitude? I don't have to go to Mass. I don't have to do penance. I don't have to say my Hail Marys. I don't have to pray the Rosary. I don't have to go to pilgrimage to Rome. I don't have to climb the Sancta Scala or do the confessional. I don't have to get baptized or be confirmed. I don't have to give tithes at the back of church today. I don't have to go on mission trip to Puerto Rico. I don't have to be on the pastoral care team or come to Wednesday Central or say my prayers or become a member. The basis of entry is the grace of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness he has secured. But is it? And can we be sure? And that leads us to the first of our two points then on our sheets if you're taking notes. How do we know this mystery? And how can we be sure about this gospel? And Paul answers it like this. It is a mystery that is 
It is a gospel that has been revealed to us through Paul. Look at verse 2 as Paul describes the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, he says, for you, you Gentiles. And that word stewardship there is an interesting word. It's the Greek word oikomamia, which literally translates administration or oversights or governance and was used in the ancient world of the management of an estate by somebody else on our behalf. Think Downton Abbey, the great house of Lord and Lady Crawley, all 300 rooms of it, but it's run, isn't it, by Carson and the formidable Mrs. Hughes. They manage the estate, they administer it. And Paul in verse two says that the estates of the church has been given to me, the apostle Paul, for you. The point that Paul is making is that salvation comes through revelation but that the revelation through which salvation comes has been given to Paul. Therefore, we can only know God through the apostle Paul. Therefore, you will only find the forgiveness of sins through the apostle Paul. Therefore, we can only be admitted into the kingdom of God through the apostle Paul, for the apostle Paul is the one who brings the gospel of Jesus Christ. His assertion is actually extraordinary, and three times he makes the point for emphasis. Have a look at verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Or verse 4, my insight into the mystery. Or verse 7, the mystery of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me according to the working of his power. Hang on a minute, isn't Paul getting a little bit ahead of himself? Isn't this a bit arrogant and boastful of the apostle to talk about himself like this? Uh, rather like this uh, man on table two next to us in a restaurant just this week as Sarah and I were trying to enjoy date night and the man on the table next to us on table three I don't know how to say this. He was the stereotypical obnoxious American. Um, he talked loudly, you can ask Sarah, about himself all night. I can tell you about his hatred of eggs, the way his mother and father produced soft eggs and the soldiers and the toast and the whole of his life history. It was just appalling. At the end of the meal, I said, Sarah, I have to go ahead. My, my head is splitting. This awful story from this awful man. Um, I need to pray for him later today, and I will do that. But it was bad. On and on and on and on and on. Me, 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 me. I, I, I. Because Paul actually does this. In ten verses, he mentions himself ten times. Yet he's humble. Have a look down to verse 8. Uh, to me, the very least of all the saints, grace was given. The least of all the saints. And actually, he breaks all the rules of Greek vocabulary in that clause, the least of all of the saints. Literally, he writes, I am the leastest of the least 
of all the saints. I'm the smallest of the smallest of all of the saints. I'm the tiniest of the tiny of all of the saints. Line up the whole church of God on earth, and I'm the most insignificant part of the church. And it's a play on words because his words, his name Paulus actually means small or little. And we think he was a little man, but he's not talking about his height or his name. He's talking about his moral unworthiness. Arrested by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Who was this Paul but Saul, the murderer of the church? He was the first century equivalent of an SS Gestapo officer organizing the death squads to eliminate the Christian church. And as he gives his testimony in 1 Timothy 1.15, written to this same church in Ephesus, this is his testimony. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's Jesus in me should show his utmost patience, making me an example of those who would come to know Christ. Who does get picked to be the apostle to the Gentiles? The most unworthy, Paul, the smallest, nothing on his moral CV, but the grace of Jesus Christ. And by the way, this smallness of Paul is the mark of the true Christian because the arrogant Christian is a contradiction in terms. It's not possible. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But Paul's point is that salvation comes through revelation and that the revelation of God's has been given to Paul for us. And this is really important. Because the way I come to know Jesus in America in 2023 is not through direct revelation from God. It's not through dreams or visions or audible voices or through prophets who come to me from God. The way I come to know Jesus and his salvation in America in 2023 is as I go back and open the scriptures and read the words of the authoritative Paul appointed by God to be the receptacle of the revelation of the gospel of grace. We hear God's as we read Paul for salvation comes through revelation. And the reason Paul can go on and on about himself 10 times in 10 verses is because he, amongst all of the apostles, is the figure that towers over them all. He alone heralds this gospel through the Mediterranean, from Syria to Asia Minor to Italy, if not to Spain. It is he who writes 13, if not 14, of the New Testament letters. Over half the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. If we don't accept the Apostle Paul, we will have to rip out 13 or 14 letters from the New Testament. 
And by the way, since he was with Luke when Luke wrote Luke, you need to get rid of Luke as well. And since Luke wrote Acts, you may as well chuck that out and put it in the shredder as well. But all of this takes us to our doctrine of the church. How is the church of God gathered and saved and formed and governed and protected and purified and sanctified and established and built? It is through the words of the apostles, but in particular, it is through the word of Paul. We saw that last week in chapter 2, verse 21. God's household, the church, built on the foundation of the apostles. For salvation comes through revelation, and the revelation, Paul says, has come through me. I don't know about you, but uh, I have found watching the death toll rise in Turkey after those twin earthquakes unbearable to watch. And for me, the moment that was just so unbearable was when four children and a mother were brought out alive, and I just imagined myself there. It's actually slightly personal because we have family, uh, a brother-in-law who has family, who live in that particular area of Gaziantep in southern Turkey. Amazingly, they have survived. I don't know how. But the death toll rises. I think as of this morning, it's over 20,000 who have died. But as the question of why begins to be asked... Focus has actually turned to how those buildings in Gaziantep were built. Were they earthquake resistant? And did they comply with building standards? And it's a fair question because in 1999, in the Izmit earthquake, over 17,000 people died. And the resolution was we can only build on this fault line with proper buildings, with proper foundations. It's an obvious point. If you're building on a fault line, the structure and the foundation needs to be earthquake resilient. And the point about the church of Jesus Christ is we will always live on a fault line. And in a few weeks, we'll see in chapter 6 how Satan seeks to defeat and deface and destroy the church and therefore, only the church that's built on the word of Jesus, on the word of the apostles, can possibly stand firm against the fault line of sin and demonic attack that will continue until the end of the age. We face a clear and present danger in the West as the tectonic plates move in a size 10 tremor on the Richter scale, as the very foundations of Christianity are shaken, even to the points that we are no longer able to safely identify a man or a woman. This last week was emotional for me because on Thursday, my own denomination by ordination, the Church of England met at their General Synod in London. And a six-year bitter debate was finally ended as the bishops proposed and the synod agreed to the introduction of blessings for same-sex 
couples. There was a lot of talk in the debate about knowing gods and honouring Christ and the church being a safe space. There was a lot of reference to the bishops having studied the scriptures and prayed to God for wisdom. But the moments the Church of England decided on that course, they ceased to be the church of God's. And a friend of mine emailed me, he texted me, time of death, February the 9th, 2023, cause of death, the abandonments of the Apostle Paul. For the moments we abandon Paul, we cease to be the church. Only through Paul can we know Jesus Christ, the great apostle of grace and love. As we abandon Paul, tamper with the foundations of the apostles' teaching, we chip away at the rule of Jesus and cease to be a church that honors Christ. And by the way, there are four great flashpoints. Four great flashpoints when it comes to the teaching of Paul. People often say, I love Jesus, but I hate Paul. Can I say if we hate Paul, we hate Jesus? Because there are four great flashpoints, aren't there, in today's culture. His teaching on homosexuality in a gay culture. Second, his teaching on the uniqueness of Christ for salvation in a multi-faith culture. Third, his teaching on original sin in a progressive culture. And what about his teaching on election in an egalitarian culture? But if you pitch Paul and shred his teaching, to be clear, you've pitched Jesus and shredded his loving, authoritative rule. Flip it around then from the negative to the positive. Let's imagine we are a church that builds on Paul's teaching on election and Paul's teaching on original sin and Paul's teaching on sexual ethics and Paul's teaching on the uniqueness of Christ. Let's imagine we are a church like that. And it's beautiful. As we grow into love, as we grow into Christ, as we grow into unity, as we grow under the authority and beauty and wonder of the word of Jesus, accepted, obeyed, applied. But there's an application for obedience. Will you obey the teaching of the Apostle Paul? And by the way, that will be hard. Because where is Paul? In prison. It's the first of his three imprisonments. But actually, Paul's imprisonment has continued, hasn't it? He's no longer in physical jail, but he's still in social prison, cancelled and deplatformed. There are vast parts of his teaching that could not be read in a public school or a prison or a hospital chaplaincy but it is the word of God. The mysterion, the revelation of the gospel, it has come to us through our apostle, the leading apostle, Paul, an application for obedience. But why has God revealed this mysterion? It leads to our second point and our second question, 
and to a really fascinating answer that very few of us will have thought about. Verse 9 and into verse 10, that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are angelic beings. And Paul's point here is stunning. It is in a way that we will never fully see or understand. We are continually surrounded by unseen spiritual realities. These unseen spiritual beings, these these angels are watching us now. They're actually glued to us now, much as many of us will be glued to the TV later on, or in the State Farm uh, Stadium in Arizona, we'll be glued later on to the Super Bowl. We'll be glued later on as we eat our hot dogs and glued and amazed by what's going on in the spectator's gallery, in the stands, on TV. But the angels are glued to what's going on in here right now. In 1 Peter 1, 12, Peter writes that the things that have now been reported to you, the gospel, which were preached by the Holy Spirit, these are things which angels desperately want to see and be in on. And John Stott puts it like this. It's as if this great drama is being enacted. History is the theater and the world is the stage. And the church, with every member in every land, are the actors. God himself has written the play and he directs and produces it act by act and scene by scene. The story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? The cosmic intelligences, principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Because the church is the trophy of his grace. We are the work of art hanging on the wall in the gallery. And as the angelic Beings look on from heaven. They're they're gobsmacked and stunned. Yes, they see our weakness and our sin, but they see beyond that. They see how humanity, phoenix-like from the ashes, has been reinstated and recreated into a new humanity, a new body, the church. It may well be this morning that you think Your life has no significance or meaning at all. It's just the school run, the homework, the commute, the mortgage. But the angels know better. They see that you have been raised and seated in the heavenly places. They see the way you have been given a righteousness that is for free. They see beyond this age to the eternity and the new heavens and the new earth, the paradise world that you will occupy. They are interested in the church and instructed by the church. One commentator puts it like this. The church has become a graduate school for angels. And what they marvel at is the manifold wisdom of God's. That word means intricate, complex, and many-sided. We have at home a Persian rug, which I think I got from Iran. I didn't go to Iran, but it's from Iran. And if you look at our Persian rug as you walk in, it's intricate. It's extraordinary. As 
all these different threads and different colors and shapes are woven together in a perfect unity that actually is stunning to look at in its complexity and color. And that's the church. Because God has taken different personalities with different occupations and different backgrounds and different testimonies from different ethnicities with different ages and preferences and different addresses and outlooks. And he's done the impossible as the PLO terror fighter who becomes a Christian is united to the Israeli army captain who becomes a Christian. As the Ukrainian who becomes a Christian is united to the Russian who becomes a Christian. As the Jew who becomes a Christian is united to the Gentile who becomes a Christian. As this rug with the Colombian and the Croatian and the Czech and the Canadian and the Algerian and the Angolan and the Australian and the American with the Botswanan and the Bolivian and the Bulgarian are united in their diversity into a perfect unity, into a new humanity, a new nation, into the body of Jesus Christ. This, today, makes the angels marvel and the demons shudder because just by attending and being here today, You are taking part in the victory of Jesus over death and sin and Satan. We are the manifold wisdom of God's. And this is a rebuke to us if we think little of our church. If perhaps we prefer to be out in the narthex, not really here today and part of the action of the gathering, or if we would prefer to be online when we could come, but we don't want to be here, or if our ecclesiology and doctrine of the church is, I do want to be here, but I don't want to be involved. I don't want to give financially or serve. I want to be distant from the church, not really part of it or serving it. The angels look on in amazement at the privilege and wonder of what is here today as we've gathered, as we showcase the triumph and victory of Jesus, as we with confident access approach God in prayer and through his word. They are amazed at the victory of Jesus and the privilege he has given us as unclean, far-off, dirty Gentiles brought right in on the same footing as the Jews into the corpus of Christ, incorporated by grace and mercy. What has God done but revealed the mysterion? It is the gospel of saving grace. How has Paul done it? But it is through Paul, through his words in the gospel, an application for obedience But why has God done it? And the answer is that we, this new humanity, this new people, would showcase to angels and demons his wisdom. And that means there is a huge application for unity. 
because it is, as we gather under the words of Paul, united together as that Persian rug of grace. As we remain united, we showcase to the angels and to the demons the wisdom and power of God. And really, the rest of the letter from Paul is going to show us how this unity is to be lived amid all of the tensions and frustrations of normal family and normal church. But we long to maintain our unity because we showcase the victory of God's to his watching world. Let's pray as we sit. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the privilege of being your gathered church, showcasing the manifold wisdom through which you have saved us. Help us to be those who remain obedient to Paul and united to one another, and vest us with the extraordinary privilege of this salvation, we pray because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.